Sure, thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I'm a old Ron Holton and I go way back, and Walt Nussbaum and I go way back, and Michael and I go way back, and the guy who was in the cage back here, Ben Holt, we go way back, so this is a delight to be here. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 with me, if you would, on a very well-known parable. Luke chapter 18, and it's verse 1 through 8. I have a fellow in our church who um, attended uh, graduate school at Princeton, and he's a very uh, brilliant individual, and he uh, had done some work in and around Harvard University. And he told me an interesting thing. He said at Harvard, the uh, school symbol, veritas, truth, Harvard was started in the 1600s to train men for the gospel ministry uh, and became the the chief place uh, at the uh, First Great Awakening where converted men would go to train for the gospel ministry was Harvard. Does that sound a little funny today? Where you would send your boys to be trained in um, biblical orthodoxy, but it was. And the symbol of Harvard was two books that were laying open with the face of the books upward. And in the middle, there was a book that was facing downward. And that was the symbol of Harvard. And what that symbol meant was the two books facing upward were the Old and the New Testaments. Because that was recognized as the truth on what you knew about the essential areas of the universe, man, evil, redemption, man's moral responsibility, salvation, things to come, where we came from, that the way you knew those things was from the Word of God. And so you saw the two volumes facing up, the Old and the New Testament. The volume in the middle facing down, you know what that was? That was to be the wisdom of man, that it was facing down. And the idea they were saying there at Harvard is that man really didn't know anything ultimately that all that he Uh, was relying upon to know what truth was, was the Word of God. That man can know nothing of ultimate ideas. It has to be God that reveals it. That's Harvard. Let me ask you, has Harvard come a ways in the last 300 years? They have. They've come away the wrong way. As a matter of fact, of all of our American New England institutions... Every single one of the Ivy League schools was begun to train men for the gospel ministry. Uh, Dartmouth was originally Moore's Indian Training School to train Indian converts in Christian ideas. Uh, Brown University was a Baptist school. Columbia, King's College was an Anglican school. Uh, As a matter of fact, only Cornell was the only uh, Ivy League school that was not begun expressly for Christian ideas. We have come a ways in our country. Now, with this in mind, I want you to just follow in this parable here in Luke chapter 18. Uh, In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem and He's going to die. Luke chapter 19 is going to begin the last week of Jesus' life. And so when we're in Luke chapter 18, 
We're in the very last days of His ministry. That's important to know. And if you'll look at Luke chapter 17, you see in verse 26, it says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. And he talks in verse 27 and following about the days of the Son of Man, the second coming. So all of Luke 17 is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When He returns to um, finish God's purpose and God's decree uh, for His will in history and His purpose for the Messiah to bring every knee in submission to this One who brings all back to God. So Luke 17 is about His second coming. Luke chapter 19, He goes up to Jerusalem to die. So we're at the very end of His life. Now, after he finished this Luke 17 discourse on the second coming, that he is coming back and he will finish his work, he tells a story in Luke chapter 18 as to what man and what the church is to be doing in the meantime. Uh, we have been left here in a very hostile planet. Would you agree with that? That we're out of our element, in a sense. We are... Um, heavenly citizens, we're aliens on this earth. Our prayer is, um, come soon, Lord Jesus, that thy, thy kingdom come, that thy will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. Well, in Luke chapter 18, he gives a, a final admonition to the church as to what it's supposed to be doing in the meantime. In the last 20 centuries, you have the cross of Christ and then his going away. And he has been gathering to himself a people. It is called in Romans chapter 11, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church age. Jesus said, all the Father has given to me. They will come to me. The one who comes to me I'll not cast out. I'll raise him on the last day. He said in Luke or John 10, I have sheep of another fold and I must go in to get them. Both Gentile and Jew, bringing them together as his church. And that's what he's doing is gathering a people right now. Now, what are we supposed to be doing? We people who are in this, this gap between the cross and the crown, this little interlude in, in earth's history where the um, prophetic time clock has stopped upon the second coming and God has been gathering a people. In Luke chapter 18, it says, now he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. What should His people be doing until chapter 17 occurs? Until He returns? Uh, what on earth are we supposed to be doing for heaven's sake? I mean, why has God left us here? Ever wondered about that? Why has He left us here? What are we supposed to be doing? Uh, why is it that when we see people save that we don't baptize them and hold them under and just send them to glory right there. You know, I mean, why do you have to hang around on planet Earth? Uh, if you had a choice between the heavenly presence and the beatific vision of God and uh, Flower Mound, no offense to Flower Mound. Are we in Flower Mound? I just want to make sure. I mean... Uh, where would you rather be? I'd rather be in glory. So what are you supposed to be doing in the meantime? Well, he says in verse 1, you're supposed to pray. And you don't lose heart. 
Would you all agree that this uh, last 20 centuries has been an ugly 20 centuries? It has been. Been a lot of killing, a lot of murder, a lot of wars, a lot of rape, a lot of abortion, a lot of violence, a lot of rebellion, a lot of atheism, idolatry, rationalism, communism, existentialism. There's been all kind of the renunciation of God. What are we supposed to be doing in a wicked day? You pray at all times and don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't quit as you see evil sometimes uh, rearing its ugly head. And he says in verse 2, he says, let me tell you a story. And that's the greatest way that Jesus Christ would make his point. He would say once upon a time. And he's going to tell you a story about a, a woman that's a great picture of the church, of you and I. And she is in a very evil day that's a great picture of the last 20 centuries where justice is perverted. And she's got, or he's going to talk about a judge that instead of being a person that's an arbiter of truth, has no sense of right and wrong. Can you imagine a wicked politician? I know that's hard. But they're actually, this is kind of a prophetic parable, that uh, we're going to have some real sorry rulers out there over the last 20 centuries. It's been said that if you wrote a history of planet Earth from the death of Jesus on, you should begin it with the words of Christ. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Because that's been the story of human history. So he's going to tell a story about a widow and about a moral um, system that is upside down and how there is not an immediate solution. Does that sound like our day? There is no immediate solution. There is no Aladdin's lamp that you can rub. You know, one has said that in our country we, we have our voting and we have a, re a revolution every four years that we get a new set of promise keepers in to change everything. And it just keeps rolling on as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. And so we're in a system that's upside down and there's no immediate change that we ever see. What are we supposed to be doing? Well, that's the microcosm of this story of which the last 20 centuries is the macrocosm. It's the picture. He says in verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now, when you look at a judge, a political ruler, what do you hope that person will have? We always hope that he will have two things. That he will have, in one sense, a precise theology that he will fear God. Amen? That's what we would like our elected officials, our judges we would like them to have a reverence of the Almighty, that they can have a standard of right and wrong. And we would like them to have a sense of the dignity of man. Amen? Those are the people that we try to push to get elected. Well, this guy is in a position of authority. And he is a flop on both counts. He has no sense of the fear of God. And he has no sense of the dignity of man. Now, does that sound like the last 20 centuries? That's France in the 1700s. It's Russia in the 1900s. It's uh, ad infinitum. It's, it's the system that has been out there. It has been punctuated at times by some pretty good guys. But the general ebb and flow has been that of men who did not fear God and they did not respect humanity. And so 
This woman is in a place like we have been and like we are at times. And he says, is this one of those disappearing music stands that just goes down? In verse 3, it says, there was a widow in that city. Now, the judge is a great picture of the world. Guess who the widow is a picture of? Somebody in the system that is being wronged, longs for things to be made right, but has no power in and of herself to bring about anything because she is hopelessly outnumbered and overpowered. Who do you think that is? I'll give you a hint. They're all in this room. Yes, it's the bride of Christ. Nothing was weaker in that day than a widow. She had no clout whatsoever. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. But apart from me, He says, you can bring about no change whatsoever. You're just voices in the dark. That is all. Uh, you're just hopefuls as the way things could be. But you can't have any power outside of me. Well, here we have a widow. No one to help her. And in verse 3, she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection. This woman is in a, in a world that is topsy-turvy. There is no reverence of God, and there is no dignity of the fellow man. And this woman says, give me legal protection. She has been done wrong. Has that happened to God's people throughout the last 20 centuries? They have been done wrong. As a matter of fact, I've been told that the 20th century has more death and martyrdom than all of the centuries of the faith put together, of Christians around the world dying. This woman is being done wrong, just like we will be done wrong. This is, in a sense, a prophetic parable. This woman is done wrong by the system, and so are we. As a matter of fact, the great many of us, uh, if you took a plane and you went 17 hours east or west, you would end up in places where it would be illegal for you and I to practice our faith. This woman has done wrong. And what she wants is for things to be done right. And she goes to the judge and she says, you need to give me legal protection. You need to establish justice in the earth. And in the same way, you and I have been put down here to bring about change, to have the truth of God and to herald the gospel and to see men and women uh, brought all of a sudden into conformity with the will of God, to fear Him, to recognize their sin, to come to the place of repentance, to know the forgiveness of God, to have His law written in their hearts, to now become better fathers and better mothers and better children, better parents, to be better um, bosses and better workers and more honest businessmen. So this woman knows she's in a bad place, but she wants to bring about right. Are you with me so far? It's a prophetic parable right on the edge of Calvary as to the way things are going to be. A wicked day, an upside-down world, a woman who wants things to be put right, but she has no power in and of herself. She's just dust in the wind. And in verse 4, after a while, uh, for a while, he was unwilling. 
He was unwilling. There is not immediate change. The woman can wish things are different. She can work for things being different. But she doesn't see a wholesale turnabout of society. Is that the story of the church? We have not seen wholesale turning around of society. So what do you do as a person of truth in a wicked world where you know what the truth is, where you labor to bring about the the men and women in submission to the kingdom of God, and you don't see it happen. All you see is wickedness and pain and anger and violence and cruelty over and over and over again. What do you do? Now remember what the first verse of this parable is. He gave them a parable that they should pray at all times and don't... What was your last phrase? Don't lose heart. Don't ekkardia is the Greek. Don't let your heart give up because you don't see the way things ought to be quickly. Well, in verse 4, for a while he was unwilling. And we have not seen thoroughgoing change for 20 centuries. We haven't seen it for 20 centuries. So what do we do? Do we quit? No, in verse 4, Afterwards, the judge said to himself, even though I don't fear God. So truth can't make him change. And I don't revere men. Kindness for his fellow man won't make him change. But what will make a judge change? That theology and compassion will not change him. What will change him? A nagging woman. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Run, did I say it? The Bible says it. I've been to seminary. I know what it says. Now, even though I don't fear God and don't respect man, because this widow bothers me. I have no idea what that means. All right. Because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. What is it that brings about change in this judge? The perseverance of a woman. She will not give up in a wicked, topsy-turvy day where evil wins, where she's in the minority, where her voice isn't heard. She just keeps coming back. She's like one of those little terriers you see chasing after a car. They just keep, someday you're, you're just ready for that terrier to be bring that pickup back with them, you know. They just keep coming. Now, why is Christ telling this parable? Because this is the way it's going to be. This is the place it's going to be at. And this is who we are. A weak people in a wicked day that want to bring about change and do all we can to bring about justice. And we won't see it immediately. So what do we do? Do we quit? Do we get discouraged? Do we say if there was a God, He wouldn't let this happen? Do we give up in our theodicy and our problems of good and evil? How many of us have known 
professing Christians that will no longer read a Bible prayer or set foot in a church because God didn't jump through the hoop as quick as they wanted it. Well, why is He telling this parable? Pray at all times and don't lose heart. You keep coming. So what changed this judge? This persevering widow. She kept coming. Now, in verse 6, Jesus says, let me interpret this parable for you. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Shall not God bring about justice? Now, there's a play on words here. The Greek word for unrighteous and the Greek word for justice are the same word. Just one with a negation in front of it. Hear what the unjust judge said. Shall not God bring about justice? Unjustice, justice. Hear what the unjust judge said. A wicked judge with no sense of truth or compassion did the right thing. Did truth get established in the earth for this widow? Yes, it did. She kept coming and right prevailed. Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge did. The right thing came about, ultimately. Will the right thing come about for us someday? It will. I know it will because I've read the end of the book. We win. Amen? We win. The eastern sky opens up. A white horse comes forth with the armies of heaven. The false prophet, the Antichrist, are consumed by the presence of His coming. The armies, the eyes rot in their sockets. The kingdom of God is established and He rules for a thousand years. Man, we win. Hear what the unjust judge said. Even an unjust judge ultimately brings about rightness and truth and compassion and the authority of God's rule. Now, shall not God bring about justice? You see the play on words? If this heterodoxical, unloving, crooked politician did right, because of a righteous woman's pleas and perseverance. If truth came about from a sorry, godless, uncaring, crooked judge, shall not God bring about justice? What's the answer to that? Shall God bring justice? You bet He will. Pray at all times and don't lose heart. This widow would not lose heart in a godless system in her weakness without any immediate change. She wouldn't lose heart. And she was appealing to a worthless judge. Jesus says, do you not think a God who is the standard of all truth and all power and all wisdom, do you really think He's going to let evil prevail? No, He will not let evil prevail. God will have His way. I was working out in the gym one time, and a guy said to me, Now, you're a Christian? I said, Yes, I am. He said, Don't you know that nice guys finish last? I said, Yeah, but bad guys go to hell. <laughs> See, that's what you need to always remember. We get the last word. We get the last word. So, 
Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Shall not God bring about justice for His elect? Now we see the counterpart here. It's not a judge. It's the Almighty. It's not a widow. It's God's elect. It's not badgering a judge. It's those who cry to Him day and night. What's our prayer? We will not relent in this wicked world. We will not give up and submit to this wicked world. We will not throw in the towel. Amen? We will not throw in the towel. We will not say, what's the use of fighting this thing when uh, you just get, a, you know, every day a little bit older and deeper in debt? How many of y'all know who I just quoted right there? The young guys went, really? Boy, that guy really knows his stuff. It's Tennessee Ernie Ford. Did you know that, Michael? 16 times. What's the use when every day you get a little bit older and deeper in debt? God will bring about justice. And so we keep on keeping on. See, these are the last words of Christ. When I leave, and I leave you guys down here to labor in a wicked world, things are not going to get changed immediately. You are going to be alone and you are going to be a minority voice. There is going to be great injustice done and bad guys are going to get in positions of control. We're going to have Chairman Mao and the Khmer Rouge and uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, ad infinitum. We're going to have these guys. But you keep on keeping on. Harry Ironside one time, great preacher back in the 20s, they said to him, uh, he said, whenever I die... He said, I want you to take my body and skin me and use my body for a bass drum to give the Salvation Army. He said, I'm just going to keep on fighting all the way to the end of my life and just take my skin and make a drum out of it. I'm trying to remember the great quote by, by uh, Billy Sunday. He said, I hate sin so bad I'm going to fight it with my fist. And if I can't fight it with my fist, I'm going to kick it. And if I can't kick it, I'm going to butt it with my head. And if I can't butt it with my head, I'm going to bite it. And if I can't bite it, I'll just gum it to death. <laughs> you just don't give up. You just stay at it. All right? How many of you young guys thought Monty Python right there? Uh, they don't know 16 times. just Monty Python. Well, in verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for His elect? What's the answer to that? Will God bring about justice? You bet He will. Someday, the widow keeps on, we keep on. We keep on preaching. In verse 7, who cry to Him night and day. Verse 1, pray at all times, don't lose heart. Verse 7, night and day, you keep on keeping on. What if the system doesn't change? Answer, that's got nothing to do with you. What if bad guys prevail? That's got nothing to do with you. What if I get killed? That's not nothing to do with you. God will not tarry for His elect. He will bring about justice. Someday He will gather the last of His elect. He will appear. He will judge this earth and bring about His purposes. Why does He tarry? Why has He waited for 20 centuries? Because He's patient and He's gathering a people. Simon Peter said, 
Do not think the Lord is slow about His promises. He's patient toward you. Not willing for any in context of you, His elect to perish, but for all in context of His elect to come to repentance. How many of you all are glad that Jesus Christ did not return and judge the earth 20 years ago? Uh, Anybody in here that would have been a crispy critter? Yeah. I'm glad He didn't come about in the 1960s. All right? I was toast. I'm glad that He's delayed. And while I'm up here preaching right now, are people being raped right now? People being murdered? Children being abused? Has He forgotten what He's doing? He will bring justice. He's got purposes. What's our job? Keep on keeping on. You just keep crying out. You keep studying. You keep preaching. You keep a lighthouse here. Right here. You keep that lighthouse. And you keep proclaiming the Word of God. Well, that's a pretty good story. Verse 8, He will bring about justice for them speedily. The word speedily, we get the word tachometer. Uh, Tachesh means quickly. It doesn't mean that He'll come next week. It means that when He's ready to come, He's going to come. Just all of a sudden, He will come speedily. The first word that is used, incidentally, in the book of Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. So, He will not tarry long. Once His purposes are done, once the uh, grain is gathered, then He will gather the tares and He will burn them with unquenchable fire. It's just that He is so long-suffering and so patient. This was a pretty good story for Jesus to tell just before His ascension, wasn't it? Because the fact is, we've been in a world that bad guys prevail and justice is not established quickly. And we are a weak people crying out and we are done wrong. But we keep on keeping on because we've read the end of the book. We know how it's going to keep up, how it's going to do. God will bring about His purposes. Thy will be done. Matter of fact, the Lord's Prayer is our Father who art in heaven. And then this is not a request. It's, a, it's an imperative. Hallowed be Thy name. He wants to see the name of God hallowed. To see nobody taking the Lord's name in vain anymore. To see pagan religion not prevailing anymore but for the hallowing of God's name to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. That is how God's name is hallowed. And that's how Jesus said we're to pray. You just keep on keeping on. That's a pretty good story, Ron. I could conclude right here. We could pray and go home. What time do we want to go home instead? i got ten minutes. But you know something? The text didn't finish. The text didn't finish. This parable is a trivia question. How many parables does Jesus ever tell that He ends with a question? Only one. And this is it. See verse 9? However, see, it doesn't end with, will He bring about justice? He will bring about justice speedily. But now He ends with a question. It's as if He's saying, Don't worry about God. God will do what God said He's going to do. He will come like He said He's going to come. He will bring about justice for His elect. 
He will vindicate His people. There will be a payday someday. Uh, it's Friday, like the old sermon goes, but Sunday's coming. There will be a day someday. But now He says, let me ask you a question. When the Son of Man comes. Now notice the word when He comes as opposed to what? If. He doesn't say if the Son of Man comes. It's when He comes. You don't have to worry about God being faithful to His Word. But He says, let me ask you a question. When He comes, will He find the faith on the earth? Who's He asking the question about? Is it about Him? It's not about Him. It's about us. He says, don't you worry about God. God will do what He said He's going to do. But when He comes, how am I going to find you? Will I find the faith? Am I going to find uh, churches that still hold to verbal, plenary inspiration of the Bible? What's the answer on that? Y'all know how many seminaries in the United States today that are graduate level seminaries that train pastors for the gospel ministry? How many seminaries in our country do you think hold to the inerrancy of the Bible? About ten. I'm not talking about Bible colleges. I'm talking about graduate level seminaries. About ten. That's it. Will I find the faith on the earth? Am I going to find Christians uh, upholding a doctrinal standard? Will they still hold to the deity of Christ? Will they still hold to the depravity of man and justification by faith? Will they still hold to the death of Christ as being the penal vicarious atonement for sin? That you are saved by faith alone? Uh, will they still hold to a moral standard? Uh, will they okay homosexuality or lesbianism? Has that happened? A lot of Christianity has punted it. The idea of moral purity. Will they still uphold the institution of marriage? Will they still uphold the biblical purpose of sexuality? When I, now, we're looking at our country. How about if you went to France? How about if you went to Germany? How about if you went to Russia? How about if you went to Spain? Poland? What would you find? Will He find the faith on the earth? Let me ask you, who has done better in faithfulness? God in His faithfulness to His children or us in our faithfulness to God and His Word? Yeah, we have, the King James says, stanketh up the scenery. We have stunk exceeding sore. Yeah, God has been faithful to us, but we have not been faithful to Him. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith? Let me, uh, if there's any life in this horse, let me beat him to death. All right? Go to your right to the book of Hebrews. Okay? To chapter 13, just real quickly. In Hebrews 13, he asks a question, the uh, author. You see verse 7? The apostles, this, the, the book of Hebrews is written late in the first century. Most of the apostles have died and have passed off the scene. And so the author says in verse 7, 
Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you. In other words, don't you forget these apostolic delegates that came to you with the orthodox faith of Christ. And considering the result of their conduct, because you never follow a person if they're, if they don't, uh, if they're not known by their fruits, considering the result of their conduct, mimic their faith. Even though the guys that taught you have died, the faith is still there. The content of the truth of the Bible, of God, of Christ, the Holy Spirit, of man, of sin, of salvation, of the church, of morality, and of end times. You mimic their faith. Even though Peter is off the scene and Paul is off the scene and Timothy is off the scene, is what they preach still around? Say yes. Yes. Then you mimic their faith. Even though the body of that guy is gone, you stay faithful to that faith. In verse 8, would you notice verse 8? What is it in verse 8 that never changes, that is the same yesterday and the day of Paul, today and the day of the great Pauline successors, Nelson and Ron Holt, or Holtman, and then tomorrow? What never changes according to that verse? Jesus. The nature of man never changes. He's a sinner. Salvation by faith, there's no plan B. The salvation in Christ never changes. The morality of God never changes. Uh, we have improved on Ruth's sickle. We have not improved on Ruth. We've improved on Peter's net. We have not improved on Peter. We haven't improved on Romans and John and Acts and 1 Corinthians and Galatians all the way to Revelation. Have we? We can't do any better than this perfect diamond. And so some things don't change. The church needs to be progressive in the sense of seeing society and what answers they need to answer out there. But some things don't change. This Bible never changes. Sin never changes. And the church is never to change on the centrality of the Word of God. One time uh, I was in... Uh, Germany. And they have a church over there with a pulpit that's pretty mounted up pretty high. And on the banister leading up to the pulpit is marvelous German woodcutting. And on the uh, banister you see all of these little demons and gorgoyles and little computer generated looking things, you know these nasty little demons, and they're all up and down this uh, banister leading up to the pulpit. And all the demons are trying to get up to the pulpit on the banister. And right at the top, just before you climb into the pulpit, there's a little terrier, a little dog, and he's facing down the banister. And his mouth is open, just like this. All right, <laughs> this dog, little old bitty, little old, I mean, I'm not talking about Lassie here. I'm talking about, you know, Joey, um, Lenny, Billy, just a little old terrier. And his lips are snarled, his eyes are narrow, and he is 
looking at these demons and he's barking and these demons are falling backward on the banister. Now, what did that congregation want the pastor to know when he stepped into that pulpit? That his job was to bark. His job was to speak out. You know, I've wondered if they took that from the book of Ezekiel about false prophets. They have become dogs that have forgotten how to bark. Evil comes, and the watchdog is sitting there catching some sleep, you know. You speak out on evil. Jesus Christ never changes. Now, why do I give you this message? Uh, do you think that Christendom is in need of this message around our world? Oh, good night. We have not done well. Second Timothy, guard the treasure that has been entrusted to you. The Word of God. You guard it. Uh, a fellow named O.S. Hawkins. Y'all know who he is? He was here a couple of days ago. Is that right? He's a buddy of mine. O.S. and I, I had lunch with him one time. and uh, He's an older man than me by months. And uh, we sat and talked. O.S., of course, he pastored for a long time. And now he travels. Um, he's with the annuity board of the Southern Baptist Convention. He travels all over the place. And I said, you know, what I see out there, O.S., in young pastors that are coming along, it's not pretty. I said, what do you see? He said, it's not pretty from where I am. I said, what do you see? Because he travels a lot. He said... I've noticed, and I'll never forget him saying this, and I said to him after he spoke this to me, I said, you ought to write on that. Because if you don't, I am. He said, I no longer see in pulpits the great establishment of the Christian truths. He said, I don't see Romans, Corinthians, Acts, Galatians being taught and the exposition of Scripture, the posit of the Bible being drawn out to show the people what God thinks. He says, what I see are pastors that are motivators and pop psychologists and entertainers. But he said, I no longer hear systematic theology taught. I no longer see the Bible defended and the Trinity defended and the deity of Christ defended and justification by faith defended. He said, I don't see the great ideas taught. I just see entertainers. And then he said, uh, no longer do I see a church being called to a moral standard. I don't see Christians getting downwind of themselves anymore, of the uplifting of moral purity and of a husband's role and of a wife's role and of the biblical orthodoxy of, of what parenting is and of what sexual purity is and um, the guarding of your tongue and all of these things. He said, whereas used to, the church was where you looked into a mirror and you saw who God was and you saw yourself. Now, he said, it's pragmatics and happiness and success we're trying to give guys. And he said, no longer do I see prayer being that which brings about the ministry of the church. Rather now, it's methodology and it's pastors who are CEOs as opposed to men of prayer who recognize that the only way they can see any success in the ministry is by the, the, 
the might and the, the, to catch lightning in a bottle of, of the sovereignty of God. You see, when you really understand what the purpose of the church is, that you have sinners who are dead, who are enemies, who will not respond, and you are called not just to feed the poor or to clothe them, but to see their souls changed, then you recognize that your duty and the hearts of men don't meet. And you can't do it. You will fail as a church. And the only thing you can do is call out to God for His mercy. And churches now begin to pray because they recognize we can't do our heavenly calling. God has to do a great thing. And they become like the book of Acts. 120 persons were gathered there and they were praying. And he says, that's what I see in the church today. I see uh, uh, entertainers talking about happiness to people with a real slick, organized system. And you know what? I said, Amen. Because that's what I've seen. I asked one time uh, an old Dallas seminarian named Ken Kalinsky. He's now good night. He's got to be in his 80s. And I asked him a little while back, what do you see? And he said, I see churches that are businesses that resemble Raytheon more than Jerusalem. And he said, I see pastors who are CEOs as opposed to men of truth, theologians, expositors and churches on their face calling out for the salvation of men. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that in a church, a church can never lose its sense of the deep magic. That they're not just an, an educational institution. They're not just a moral institution. They are people with a great commission to take the gospel to the hearts of enemies that will not meet with God. And God has to do a mighty work out there. That's when things are going to happen. Amen? Best thing I could share with this church is this text. You keep on keeping on. And when Jesus Christ returns, what will His opinion be of this church and of you? Have you stayed faithful and true to the Word of God? That's the might of the Scriptures. Listen, on my church staff, I've got a guy named Daijing Wong who has his doctorate in theology from Dallas Seminary, and in some doctor in what's called linear optics. I don't know. This guy has, has answers to what I ain't got questions. He's Chinese, and he is brilliant. And uh, he, was a, uh, he was an atheist in communist China, came over here. You know how he got converted? This brilliant kid. But he had this big empty spot because he was alien from his creator. And all the knowledge and the communism and all that stuff will not fill that alienation from God. He was over here going to a conference at the University of Texas, that marvelous Christian institution down in Austin. And uh, you know what's on the library at the University of Texas? It's a verse. Anybody know? There's a Bible verse on the University of Texas library. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know what? Daijing Wong, in his emptiness, looked up at the University of Texas library and saw from John chapter 8, you shall know the truth. And he goes, hmm, I will read a Bible. 
He reads his Bible, gets converted, and now he represents our church over in China teaching orthodoxy to the underground church. Led to Christ at the University of Texas. There is a God. Isn't that amazing? I heard of another guy, noted missionary. You know how he got converted? He was in a, he was in a prisoner of war camp. And one of the uh, guys in the prisoner of war camp, they were low, and I'm going to tell the story here, Ron. Don't get embarrassed. The prisoner of war camp was low on toilet paper. And one of the uh, commandants of the camp, to substitute for toilet paper, he took this despised book, of which there were a lot laying around, called a Bible. And he used it to wipe himself. One of the guys in the camp, one of the prisoners, was so aching for truth that he found the soiled pages of a torn-out Bible in the latrine. You know what he did? He cleaned them, and he read them, and he got converted, and he is in the mission field. You ever heard of that happening with the writings of Kierkegaard? <laughs> Kirk of what? Who cares? Come on, Kurt Warner? No, Kierkegaard. Nobody cares. But the Word of God can change lives like that. Uh, my brother, his, my older brother, his life was so out of sorts. When we would go to Christmas, we would schedule it not to be there with him and his wife because they would just fight all the time. And I prayed and I saw no hope whatsoever. One day my brother says to me, Tommy, why don't you and Teresa come on over to the house? We're going to cook a brisket. And I thought we'd get the family over and just spend a little time together. I thought, oh, boy. We went over there, and it was pleasant. It was nice. It was sweet. He was kind and talking to everybody. His life was just changed. And he said, you know what? He said, I read your book. I wrote a book called The Big Picture on the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He read it. And he said, I've been reading that book, and I got to reading the Bible right along with it. And then I'm not, I'm not stretching this. He asked me this question. He said, I've got to ask you something. In the book of Ezekiel, whenever you see the bones coming together on the field of dry bones, but there's no life in them until God breathes on them, is that Israel coming together politically until the second coming of Christ where they're born again as a nation? Or is that an allegory? I went, yeah. My brother got converted reading on his own the Bible. I looked up in church a couple of weeks later. We were having communion, and my brother was serving communion. And I just looked at it. And we taped our sermons, still do. And I just spoke. We always sent tapes to my mother. And I was sitting there with a mic in my face, and I went, Mama, Bobby's in church. My brother now heads, helps to run our jail ministry. Every Sunday he goes to the pod at the Denton County Jail and teaches the Bible. If he had to lose his job or that jail ministry, he'd give up his job. Just converted, reading his baby brother's book and the Bible that goes with it. That's the power of God. Give you, a, you got time for just one more story, Ron? I'll be through it. When I was in college, did you share I was one of the great athletes of the 20th century? 
I led, I quarterbacked for the North Texas State University Eagles, led us to seven wins in my four years that I was there. Uh, what was it talking about? Oh, yeah. We were playing the um, University of Arkansas freshmen. I got put in in the second half, and I got hot. I hit 11 out of 13. Took us down, was taking us down again, two-minute offense, trying to get us in. I'm ch- running around. They blitzed this linebacker, this middle linebacker, a little bit stocky guy, and they blitzed him. And he came through, and he grabbed me, not by the face mask, which is illegal. He grabbed me by the headgear right here, which is just a bad deal. All right? He grabbed me by the headgear and, like, threw me like a rag doll. And I hit the ground. And, of course, it was legal, but my pride was hurt. And I jumped up, and I pushed this guy right in the face. All right? And then I waited until about four or five guys had a hold of him and just hit him real good right there. See? And this guy, I remember, he was enraged. And he cussed me. And he said he was going to meet me. He said, I'll catch you under the stands, quarterback. Well, he's still waiting, all right, because I no-showed on him. But I remember how mad this guy was. And we showered, got on the bus, and got out of Arkansas fast as we could. Well, that being said, that was 1969. Uh, back in the mid-'90s, I'm doing a conference for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I'm speaking... And uh, a guy who is the um, uh, principal at Mesquite High School, his name was Link Fuller, he's leading the worship. And we just had this bond. I mean, he, he led the worship. I taught the Word. And we just, we just had a great spirit, got together real close, got to ministering. I said, Link, when did you come to Christ? He said, in college. I said, where'd you go? He said, University of Arkansas. Did you play football there? Yes, I did. I said, what year? He said, 69. We played you guys. Do you remember when y'all played North Texas? I did. Didn't we beat y'all? Yeah, you beat us pretty good. What position did you play? Middle linebacker. And I'm thinking to myself, what goes around comes around. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And uh, I said, you played middle linebacker. Uh, do you remember in that game getting in a fight with a quarterback? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> it was him. He and I were cussing each other, trying to get at each other 20 years earlier. And now here we were. I'm teaching and he's leading worship. We figured out that God saved us as a practical joke on hell. You know? just to show what His Word could do. And you know, I got story after story. And you know what, Ron? You could take any philosopher, any political system, any idea of science or of sociology, and you can't change one soul. Jesus Christ, by His Word, can totally bring a knee and a tongue in submission to God until that time that the whole world comes to submission and make the world a better place. Isn't that right? So we're going to be faithful to the Scriptures all the way until Christ comes. Pray with me. And uh, Ron, you come on up and close us. And if y'all can make these Mondays with my man Walt Nussbaum. He was on the staff, went through my program twice. He was just so dense. 
I had to teach him twice. A thousand hours I put into this guy. And he's real good. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this blessing. And Lord, as we have to go out there in a topsy-turvy world where bad guys hurt good guys, and we're just a widow with no strength in herself, but we don't tolerate the way things are, and we just keep working, and we're going to keep working until you come. And if she saw success, how much more us. Let us remember to remember those who spoke the Word of God to us and considering the, the outcome of their life, mimic their belief. Because Jesus Christ does not change from today unto yesterday unto forever. He shall remain. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.